This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by GenScript. GenScript is the leading gene, peptide, protein, and antibody research partner for fundamental life science research, translational biomedical research, and early stage pharmaceutical development. Since their establishment in 2002, GenScript has exponentially grown to become a global leading biotech company that provides life sciences, services, and products to scientists in over 100 countries worldwide. During their tenure, they have built the best-in-class capacity and capability for biological research services, encompassing gene synthesis and molecular biology, peptide synthesis, custom antibodies, protein expression, antibody and protein engineering, and in vitro and in vivo pharmacology, all with the goal to make research easy. Today's presentation is titled, Understanding and Designing Flanking Homology DNA Assembly Experiments and is being presented by Dr. Nathan Hilson, who is the Director of Synthetic Biology and Informatics at the Joint Bioenergy Institute. Nathan received his PhD in biophysics from Harvard Medical School in 2004. He was then a postdoctoral fellow at the Stanford School of Medicine. And in 2009, he became the Director of Synthetic Biology and Informatics at the Joint Bioenergy Institute. His research focus is on developing and demonstrating experimental wetware, software, and lab laboratory automation devices that facilitate, accelerate, and standardize the engineering of microbes. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Nathan at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available within the next 24 to 48 hours at bit.ly slash DNA assembly, all lowercase, all one word. That's bit.ly slash DNA assembly. So now over to you, Nathan, for the presentation. All right, thanks a lot, Amanda. Um, and, and thanks to, to David and, and GenScript for sponsoring this, this webinar. Um, as Amanda mentioned, I'm gonna be telling you guys a little bit about um, DNA assembly. I'm spending a little bit more time on flanking homology methods um, and then kind of touching upon uh, protocol design software and, and synthetic DNA. So just as kind of a brief outline of, of where we're gonna be going, I'm gonna be starting out with um, what is the actual challenge with DNA assembly and uh, where DNA, um, synthetic DNA fits in. Um, as a little bit of background and context, I'll spend a couple of slides on traditional um, and biobrick um, approaches um, to DNA construction, then kind of getting into flanking homology methods, um, including um, Gibson assembly. And then for some additional context, also talking a little bit about some of the type 2S methods and, and the, the user um, approach. Um, after we kind of get through some of these methodology and types of introductions, talking a little bit about some considerations around the pieces that you would be assembling together and um, kind of um, what to look out for if they're going to be incompatible with each other and maybe how to resolve some of those incompatibilities. Uh, and then kind of um, starting to conclude on the methodologies, um, just some takeaway um, messages from what's been presented so far. And in the end, I'll just give you a very kind of a quick um, flavor um, for um, kind of a, available software design tools that might help you design your own um, DNA assembly protocols. All right, so kind of at a high level, the, the DNA assembly challenge is, is shown on, on this slide. 
So at the bottom, um, we might have a variety of different types um, of DNA fragments that we might want to be putting together. So we might have something like a vector backbone. We might have um, components like coding sequences or promoters, terminators. And we basically just want to assemble all of these together into, say, for example, a circular um, plasmid construct or a linear cassette that maybe we would be integrated in, into, into a genome. So traditionally, uh, the way that this has been done, and this is kind of what I did um, in, in graduate school, is that you would have an expression um, vector. So the pet vectors are, are kind of a, a popular series of, of, of vectors. And within these, these cloning vectors, um, you would have a multiple cloning site. So this might be a series of, say, 10 different restriction enzymes, which are kind of unique cutters within that um, enzyme. And if you wanted to clone in any particular insert, you just looked for a couple of um, restriction enzymes that are in the multiple cloning site, uh, but absent um, from your particular insert of interest. And, and this works great for just you know, single um, inserts, but if you want to start be putting together uh, multiple inserts at the same time, or if you want to start um, thinking about automating um, your kind of your cloning with robotics, it becomes um, really challenging because any particular um, cloning um, approach is going to be using different combinations of, of enzymes, so that becomes challenging to make a uniform master mix across all of your um, assemblies. Um, and as well as, as you get increasing numbers of inserts, it becomes really hard um, to find additional restriction enzymes which are absent from all of your, of all of your inserts. Um, and there's some additional challenges we'll get into in a second in terms of scar sequences and things like that. Um, so maybe kind of one um, step beyond um, the kind of the traditional approaches um, is the BioBrick approach. And what I'm showing in particular is actually the, the bagel brick kind of vari variation of, of the BioBrick approach. Um, several publications kind of going back into 2008, um, 2010. Um, and the basic idea here is that can we make an approach that's um, kind of much more standardized and, and, and automatable? And the idea here is that um, basically we have kind of these standards where flanking every DNA fragment that you might want to assemble um, together, you might have two upstream enzymes in the Bagelbrook approach, it's EQR1 and Bagel2, and then downstream you have a BAMH1 and, and, and ZO1. So, if you want to basically um, put together part A um, with part B, um, you can, for example, digest um, the, the part B vector with bagel 2 um, and ZO1 um, to release that fragment. And then in the part A vector, you digest with BAMH1 and, and ZO1. And the kind of the really clever thing here is that the overhang sequences um, that are released from BAMH1 and bagel 2 are the same. So they're basically um, kind of cohesive and sticky. But after you fuse um, that um, set of overhangs together, you now have um, a sequence that can no longer be, be cleaved either by BAMH1 or Bagel2. So now kind of your product sequence, again, matches kind of the same um, packaging where you still have a unique EQR1 and Bagel2 upstream and a unique BAMH1 and ZOAN downstream. Um, now, this is automatable and it's standardized, um, but again, kind of pay attention to this scar sequence because every single time you fuse together two bio bricks, you're gonna end up with one of these, um, these scars. Um, and the other kind of limitation with, with bio bricks is you're only able to basically put together two things at a time. So if we have kind of a more complicated thing that we wanna to put together, so maybe we're starting with um, one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe seven different parts that we wanna to put together, we have lots of kind of, you know, um, this two, two at a time assemblies that we have to do. So you have this binary assembly tree with lots of steps. Um, and also every single time you put together two parts, you end up with this scar sequence, which you can't, you can't control. So those might be some of the limitations of, 
of kind of the biobrick approach. Um, the other kind of maybe things just to think about um, is that it's easy to add things um, to the ends of, of biobricks, but basically you're stuck with what you have in the middle. It's very difficult to go back and um, modify pieces in the middle unless you kind of go way back to the beginning. Um, and if you have any combinatorial um, diversity, so say um, maybe we had lots of different um, variations of this ORF-Ds, we had lots of orthologs, or we had different RBSs or different terminators, um, since each one of these steps is essentially a cloning step, unless you collect lots and lots of colonies over and over again, you might lose a lot of your combinatorial diversity. So those are some of the considerations. Um, now beyond um, biobricks, there's a, a large variety of kind of more uh, modern uh, approaches um, that are kind of more sequence um, independent. Um, so this is just one kind of flavor of these um, flanking homology methods. And this is, this is slick. Um, so they, they call it sequence and ligation independent cloning. So the idea would be that you might have some type of a linearized destination vector. You might derive this from PCR or, or a digest, um, for example. And then you have a PCR product, or it could even be a, a um, actually a, a synthetic piece of, of DNA that you could just order directly from a company like Genscript. Um, and the idea here is that kind of shown in white um, is uh, homologous sequences between um, the destination vector and the, the PCR product, and then also in gray. And with SLIC, it essentially has a, a three prime um, exoactivity of the T4 DNA polymerase in the absence of DNA TPs. So you start getting some, some chew back on the three prime ends. And then you basically add in DCTP to kind of arrest um, kind of the, the chewback activity. Now you have these kind of cohesive sticky ends where kind of this, this white overlap um, sequence is going to be able to stick together um, with, the, with the corresponding white overlap on the destination vector. Um, and then basically these guys um, just kind of stick together and then post-transformation inside of the cells, the cells will repair um, these single-stranded DNA gaps. Um, now, if you look at something like the Gibson approach, it's very, um, very related, um, same basic topology. So you basically start with exactly the same input. So you have a destination vector and a PCR product, again, with the kind of the flanking um, homologous sequences. Gibson works slightly differently than, than Slick. Instead of a three prime exo, you have a five prime exo activity. Um, and uh, after a while um, of the exo activity, you, you reveal these single stranded um, overlap um, sequences. And the kind of the, the one distinction um, between the Gibson approach um, and, and Slick is that in addition to kind of the, the five prime exo, you also have a, a, a say a fusion um, polymerase. So after you have this annealing event, the polymerase can basically start to seal um, all of those gaps. And essentially you have a race condition between the exonuclease, which is chewing away, and then the polymerase, which is trying to fill in. Um, now the polymerase is, is heat stable, and the five prime um, exonuclease is less stable. So over time, this activity for the exonuclease is gonna go away, and the polymerase kind of maintains, um, and then you have kind of a tack ligase at the end to kind of seal, um, seal the nick, and then, you, and then you do your transformation. So very similar um, type, type of an approach. There's other methods too, um, like this is the CPAC approach, circular polymerase extension cloning. Uh, again, very similar types of um, input sequences. The way that this works is a little bit different. You actually, um, it's almost like a kind of PCR thermocycling, where you kind of melt um, the double-stranded DNA um, into kind of single-stranded, and then maybe the top strand of this, this PCR product or, or synthetic DNA fragment um, would then be um, annealing with um, maybe the, the, the bottom strand um, of, the, um, the, of the vector. 
Um, so it's kind of a different way of kind of getting these, these guys together, but you still have the, the polymerase, which will then basically um, go all the way around um, the plasmid, um, for example, and then um, you're just left with these couple of nicks, which get, gets fixed when you, when you transform. Um, just as kind of another um, type, of a, type of an approach, um, this is um, kind of yeast um, transformation associated recombination. Um, I guess the, the figures that I grabbed here are, are from the, the, the Shao 2009 paper for DNA assembler. But the idea is very similar. You have these flanking homology sequences um, that you basically um, uh, have guiding the assembly process. And this can, um, kind of shown on the left side, this can, for example, be making uh, circular constructs, maybe with a two micron plasmid for, for yeast. Um, or you can also um, imagine having a, a DNA fragment um, that's assembling together, but doesn't completely make the full um, circle, but could then be crossing over, for example, with um, with, the, with the genome. So you might be able to use this to integrate entire multi um, kind of fragment um, pieces of DNA into the, into the, into the genome. So by no means um, an exhaustive um, list, but those would be some flavors of the different types of assembly methods. And we'll talk about a little bit later why you might wanna be using one um, rather than another in, in particular um, circumstances. So again, just to kind of emphasize, there's lots of similarities between these methods. They generally all start with exactly the same types of starting materials and they all basically end up with um, the same assembled products. Uh, there might be some slight differences in terms of how long these um, overlap um, sequences are going to be. So maybe if you have a method um, like SLIC um, or Takara Clontex infusion, they're going to be a little bit shorter. Um, maybe Gibson might be kind of a, an intermediate um, length. And then maybe for the yeast tar cloning, you might have you know, even, even hundreds of base pairs of, of, of homology. So it kind of depends on the method. Um, but the nice thing about all of these um, methods is it's very easy to automate them. So you always use exactly the same master mix if you're doing kind of the in vitro methods like Gibson, um, or if you're using yeast tar cloning, there really aren't any reagents other than, than, than the yeast them, themselves. Um, another really key point um, that I didn't emphasize yet is that all of these methods are, are scarless. So you get exactly the DNA out that you design. So unlike um, maybe traditional cloning where you still have all the multiple cloning sites, and you have the scars um, from, from actually doing the ligations or, or bio bricks where you have all these scar sequences. If you look at these methods, um, like the flanking homology methods, you have control over every single base pair. And I think that's a really kind of a key um, value add of, of these methods. Um, and it's also largely speaking, um, although we talk about some of the caveats there in a second, um, it's largely sequence independent. So you can basically use any sequences you want um, and assemble them um, together. Um, including if you want to, for example, use methods like the flanking homology methods to build biobrick compatible um, vectors. Or as we'll see later, you could use a Gibson approach to assemble together a, a golden gate you know, type, of, type of a vector. Um, so these, that's also kind of a really nice thing is they're, they're largely sequence independent. Um, now kind of going back to the DNA assembly challenge, it might be that we don't only want to put together one fragment at a time. You might want to put together multiple fragments. And unlike uh, biobricks, where you're limited by putting together two you know, fragments at a time, or with traditional cloning, where it becomes increasingly difficult to add in each additional um, fragment, um, some of these uh, flanking homology methods, um, you can say, for example, you know, get up to maybe 10 um, or so fragments going together at the same time. It's, it's increasingly difficult. You know, once maybe you get beyond you know, four or five fragments going together at a time, it, it does become a little bit more difficult, but you can um, get uh, larger numbers of fragments going together. 
And the way that this works, um, you basically just uh, follow the rainbow in this particular example. So like colors go with, go with like, um, and you basically just follow the colors all the way through, um, and, and then you, it basically will assemble into the, the final um, construct. Other things to kind of highlight, you know, it's just as easy to change, you know, something in the middle of a pathway as it is things at the end, which is kind of differentiating from, from Biobricks. Um, and if you want to um, do kind of combinatorial libraries, since you're doing this all in one step, instead of multiple cloning steps, um, you can basically not lose um, any of your um, sequence diversity um, between steps. So you still have to collect, you know, as many colonies as, 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 as you're going to need to oversample the diversity of your library, but you're only doing a single cloning step. So it's, it's easier to not have to worry about losing your diversity. Um, now, some of the challenges here um, would be that you really do have to um, design um, all of the um, overlap um, sequences um, to make sure that, for example, that you only get like um, junctions assembling with like. Um, and in order to um, basically uh, add on all of these flanking homology sequences, you might have to do that, for example, through um, DNA oligos and PCR or just ordering um, a synthetic DNA fragment that already has these, these flanking um, sequences. So there is you know, some, some work that, um, that needs to be done. And you also have to be careful, as we'll see in a second, about having um, repeated sequences. So say, for example, and we'll see this in a second again, if you have two you know, PLAC promoters, how do I differentiate this yellow sequence um, from this maybe this, this bluish sequence? So there's, there's definitely some challenges still. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Um, as some additional kind of context um, and, and maybe kind of reflect on like why the flanking homology methods um, are, are advantageous in certain situations. Um, it's probably useful to also talk about some of the type 2S methodologies. Um, this is the Golden Gate approach. Um, you can kind of see some of the Angler um, you know, papers that kind of first um, reported this. And the, the general concept with these type 2S enzymes is that the recognition sequence shown here is, is BSA1. The recognition sequence is separated from the actual overhang that gets generated. So you basically have full control over um, any um, overhang that, that you want to use. So the way that this is kind of done in practice is that you can, for example, start um, with the destination vector that already has um, kind of these um, BSA1 sites um, in the vector, or you could prepare it um, through um, PCR linearization. Um, and the same thing with the PCR product. So instead of maybe having a flanking homology sequence at the ends for something like Gibson, you have kind of these flanking um, BSA1 sites and then your, your different types of, of overhang sequences. And besides PCR products, this could be a synthetic DNA um, fragment that you, you potentially just order. Um, now, one way of, of implementing um, kind of the Golden Gate approach, and this was you know, probably the, the first way that it was reported, um, is that you can put all of these fragments together um, in a single pot with BSA1 um, and ligase, and essentially you kind of have uh, an alternating um, type of a, of a thermal cycle happening where at kind of the optimal temperature for, for BSA1, you're going to be trying to digest, so you're going to be making cuts um, at all of these overhang locations. Um, and then you have a, a, a ligation um, step where you can basically take um, the, the cut parts and ligate them together. Now, not only is it possible to kind of go to your final product, um, but you can just kind of reversibly ligate back to get to your original starting material. However, for the final product, there aren't any um, BSA1 sites. 
um, left in the final construct anymore. So you can't digest this. So this is effectively a dead end product. So over time, after several thermocycles, your, your population of molecules will kind of evolve towards this desired end product. Um, now a couple of things just to point out. So this isn't quite um, as sequence independent as maybe some of the flanking um, homology methods, although we'll caveat that in a second. Um, but essentially you don't want to have, ideally you don't want to have the same um, BSA1 site anywhere else um, in either your kind of the insert or into the, into the vector, because if that's the case, um, then basically every single time you're going to be chopping apart your, in, your insert or chopping apart your, your vector. Now that's not um, kind of, the, uh, that's not going to defeat the process because as long as you end on a ligation step, you can still end up with your final product. Um, but it just makes the overall process a little bit less efficient um, if you have um, internal BSA1 sites. Um, now just as kind of with the flanking homology methods with golden gate assembly, um, you can be putting together multiple fragments at the same time. Um, again, just kind of fo following the, the colors um, as you kind of go through, um, go through the process. Um, and uh, some of the advantages I would say of um, kind of the Golden Gate um, assembly approach is that these overhang sequences are extremely short, so only say four base pairs. So if you want to get full combinatorial reuse across an entire library, so you only want to maybe prepare a single PCR product of the red insert once, or you only want to have to order a synthetic fragment containing that red fragment once. Um, then with, with Golden Gate, the only requirement is that every different variant of your library has essentially these four base pairs of identity across all the combinations. Whereas, for example, if you're trying to do that maybe with the Gibson approach, this might need to be closer to say 25 um, or 30 base pairs. Um, so if you're doing protein fusions or types of things like that, it might be um, advantageous. Um, just as kind of like with the flanking homology methods, you do have to kind of make sure that all of these overhangs are going to be compatible with each other. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, you still have to design um, kind of all of this flanking um, sequence and the oligos for making those. You have to design the DNA, synthetic DNA fragments for doing those. Um, and then it's also kind of really important to kind of um, find the most cost effective uh, design strategy. So depending on um, specifically where you place these overhang sequences, you might be able to get full combinatorial reuse, ideally if you're putting it in a region that there's lots of sequence identity, or if there's no sequence identity, then you're not going to be able to have as much reuse. So there's a lot of kind of fine tuning and optimization that, that you might um, need to be able to do to kind of get the, the best possible um, outcome. Um, and again, just as kind of a, as a background context um, in, in which we can kind of um, frame a discussion around the flanking homology methods, this is just kind of another type of related approach, um, the user approach. And here you, you essentially do need to do um, some type of a, of a PCR reaction um, or um, do, do DNA synthesis that's enabled um, by having uracil-based pairs. And there's a particular um, set of enzymes, um, that I guess they're kind of collectively referred to in this method is just that the user um, enzymes. Um, and the idea is that the user enzymes will cleave um, at a uracil um, position, um, which basically generates these um, overlaps. And the kind of the cool thing about the user approach is that you can um, control exactly how long this overlap sequence is. Uh, so um, for methods like um, the type 2S methods, generally you're going to be limited to whatever the enzyme is going to be cleaving. So it's typically say three or four base pairs. Um, and then user can be um, say um, anywhere um, between say eight and 15 um, base pairs, which is going to be a slightly shorter length than you would find with the flanking homology methods. 
So it might be able to provide a little bit more specificity than say a Golden Gate or type 2S approach, but it's gonna be shorter than maybe a flanking homology approach. Um, so if you have kind of shorter um, regions of sequence entity, maybe this might be kind of a nice sweet spot in between a type 2S approach and, and, and a Gibson approach. Um, now I think what we need to talk about a little bit are, are some of the, the challenges um, in, in some of the uh, incompatibilities that you might um, encounter between um, the assembly pieces that you're putting together. Um, so this is a specific example and we'll kind of maybe talk about it um, from the aspect of maybe a Gibson assembly or other type of flanking homology method. But let's say that we're trying to put together this particular construct where we have maybe a, um, a vector backbone and then we have kind of six inserts that we want to put together. Um, and as you kind of see here, maybe the insert um, number two and the insert number five are the same um, PLAC um, promoter. So a challenge is if I'm kind of assembly piece number one and I'm looking downstream for something that looks like this PLAC, um, you know, I could potentially just um, assemble together with insert number two or I might mistakenly um, instead um, assemble together with insert number five because basically two and five look very similar together to each other. So instead of basically having the full vector um, going through inserts one, two, three, four, five, six, I might basically have the vector and then insert one skip all the way um, to insert five and six. So I'd be missing two, three, and four. Um, so that wouldn't be what I, what I want. So you, you could potentially get these, these side products that you don't necessarily want. So one way that, that people um, can get around um, some of these incompatibility issues, for example, is doing what we call a hierarchical assembly. So you can imagine that we could um, first, um, you know, say for example, do a splicing by overlap extension or PCR fuse um, fragments um, one through three, and then separately four, five, and six. Um, and then basically we would just be assembling um, uh, these three um, pieces together. And, and that way that um, kind of the ends of these, these contigs, you know, whether it's the um, kind of the, the five prime end of assembly, you know, piece one, um, or the three prime end of assembly piece three, there aren't any incompatibilities at, at these ends. Um, and basically what we've done is inside of these contigs, we've kind of buried all of these junctions, which basically are repeated somewhere else in the, in, in the construct. Um, so this might be a way of actually trying to get um, away from some of these um, assembly piece incompatibilities. But um, there's actually quite a bit of work um, that might be required um, to actually figure out when these ends are compatible or not. So for example, one thing that you might do is just look at all of your flanking homology at the ends of each of these assembly pieces and then just blasting them against all of the other assembly pieces. And for example, it looks like in this case, if I blasted the kind of the right side, the three prime end of assembly piece one against all of the other assembly pieces, I might've had um, some um, homology um, to um, inside of assembly piece you know, zero. Um, and that's because there's also a PLAC in the vector backbone. And then kind of the, the four or five junction also has this PLAC sequence. So I would find out that I probably don't want to put in um, uh, the right side of assembly piece one in any assembly reaction that contains pieces zero, four, or five. So basically what we did is we first assembled together one, two, and three. So now the right side of number one is no longer exposed. And that's basically how it works. So it's, it's, it can be time consuming and, and, and tedious, 
Um, but if you really want to make sure you avoid any of these incompatibilities, you kind of need to do those do those steps. Now, kind of shown um, kind of here is is more of a Golden Gate you know type of an example, but it's exactly the same process that you would use for flanking homology methods like like Gibson or others. Um, or, or even user uh, cloning for that matter. So the idea is you really want to make sure that your overlaps or overhangs um, are matching between parts that you want to, to go together. Um, so um, you want to make sure, for example, that the kind of the blue overhang sequence um, of, the, of, the, of the red piece um, is going to be going together with the, you know, the, the, the blue piece on the vector backbone. Um, but what you don't want to have happen is you don't want to have, for example, a um, a blue overhang being complementary to a red overhang, because that wouldn't be a desired um, thing. And I guess in this particular, you know, example, um, we 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 have a, a case where we have a kind of a blue overhang um, that is overly complementary, say say three out of the four base pairs, um, with something that's kind of an off target. So this, these might be the types of things to look out for. So for for Golden Gate, you can like, or maybe for user, you can kind of count up the number of mismatches. And you might have a threshold saying, you know, I can tolerate, you know, up to two um, matches, but three or more is too much. Um, for things like flanking homology methods, you might be looking at um, maybe melting temperatures um, of, the, of, the, of the matches between things to see if they're going to be stable under, under your um, reaction conditions. But it's a very similar type, type of an approach where you want to make sure that things that are going to be going together that are intentional, um, whereas things that, that shouldn't be um, aren't. Um, now, one of the beautiful things about these, um, these methods, whether it's um, Golden Gate, which is shown a little bit more here, or the flanking homology methods like, um, like Gibson, um, is that you have a lot of different choices um, in terms of where to place your overhang sequences for type 2S methods like Golden Gate, or your overlap sequences like, um, like Gibson. And at the end of the day, all of these different choices are still going to result in exactly the same assembled sequence. So you're still going to be completely scarless. You're still going to end up with exactly the same product that you want. But the way that you actually implement the design process or the assembly process is a little bit different. So this is for, for Golden Gate, but it's exactly the same idea for, for flanking homology. So if we have two parts that we're putting together, say the, the gray part and the, the white part, um, one thing that we could potentially do is choose a very neutral um, overhang location. So maybe we're grabbing um, the first two base pairs of that overhang from the preceding part, and we're choosing the next two base pairs of that overhang coming from the subsequent part. So it's a very neutral, it's kind of placed right in the middle. So um, if we assemble these, these guys together, we would get this final product. However, we can basically shift that overhang to be entirely contained within the preceding part, and it would still result in exactly the same product. Or we can shift um, the overhang, you know, down into the subsequent um, part, and again get the same thing. So basically, you can increasingly shift the overhang out to the to the left into the preceding part, and you can shift it out to the right um, into the next part, um, and you still get the same thing. So this is really key for for several reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that if you can shift around the overhang or overlap sequence and still get the same sequence, that basically allows you to make sure the overhang or overlap are in regions where, for example, in a combinatorial assembly process, you can locate these overhangs or overlaps where there's lots of sequence identity, so you can really maximize the reuse across um, all of your combinations. And the other thing is, um, you know, for example, if you saw that maybe with purely um, neutral overhangs or overlaps, if you do get some of these um, incompatibilities um, in between the overhangs that you've, that you've selected, 
all that you really need to do is start shifting um, the actual overhangs or overlaps until you look across all pairs of, of junctions and everybody um, is only going together with who they should be going together with. Now, again, this can be um, a little bit tedious and, and, and time consuming. And if you don't have software that can help automate that for you, um, that might be um, pretty, pretty, pretty laborious. Um, I should just kind of note um, in, in passing that uh, I've been emphasizing a lot uh, scarless approaches where you always get exactly the same sequence um, that you want. And the trade-off here is it really does take a little bit more effort on the, on the design side um, to make sure that all of your processes are going to work uh, efficiently. Now, there are um, some methods that are um, kind of a little bit more um, standardized in terms of always using exactly the same overhang sequences or overlap sequences. So I guess in flanking homology methods, you might call those kind of standard linkers that you would use, or for um, type 2S methods, you know, standard um, overhang. So if you look at methods on the type 2S side, like Moklo or um, other types of standard methods, um, they basically pre-validate um, all of the overhangs. So you don't have to do any thinking at all around if your overhangs are going to be compatible or not. That's basically already been solved for you. Um, the, the really big challenge there, though, is that you're always going to end up with these scar sequences of, of these overhangs that you didn't have any control over. And it's the same thing with the flanking homology style methods, where if you use these standardized linkers, um, then, again, you don't have to make sure that the linkers are compatible with each other, um, but then you have all of these scarred sequences, all these linkers that you don't um, have any control over. Um, right. So just some, some take-home messages, I, I would say. Um, for the um, uh, DNA assembly methods. Um, and, and the first thing is just kind of a, a point about the role of DNA synthesis. So a lot of um, you know, places I mentioned that you could be deriving these fragments uh, from digest or from PCR reactions. Uh, it's very common practice now where you could um, basically get to that directly um, from, from DNA synthesis um, from vendors like, like, like GenScript. Um, so that can really kind of facilitate um, your, your workflow. Um, there's lots of different methods to choose from. Um, I guess here we talk mostly about flanking homology um, methods and say, for example, between those different methods, there might be um, different kind of um, advantages. Um, so maybe the different methods have um, different um, overlap lengths. So maybe um, infusion might be a little bit shorter. Maybe Gibson is more intermediate. Um, if you have something like yeast assembly, maybe very long. So the longer the sequences, you can potentially get more um, specificity at the trade-off of combinatorial um, reuse. Um, there's some other types of considerations. Um, so um, for example, with um, kind of maybe like the, the, the CPAC method that we talked about before, if you have the, the entire DNA strands separating and then re-annealing, potentially you could get misannealing um, anywhere along the DNA assembly fragments, whereas with some of the more I guess we refer to them as two-back methods like, like Gibson. You really only have to worry about um, maybe some, some mispriming or misannealing at the very ends of your pieces. Um, in terms of kind of sequence um, independence, and we talked a little bit about how Golden Gate is, is not as sequence independent because you have to make sure that you don't have um, restriction sites. Um, however, for some of these flanking homology methods, you still have to worry about things like um, DNA hairpins, so you are revealing, for example, in Gibson, single-stranded um, DNA at the ends of your pieces, and if you have really strong hairpins, um, basically that single-strand DNA might just um, anneal to itself as opposed to going to its partner. Um, so you have to think about things like that. Um, now, secondary structure might have different temperature, um, melting temperatures, so if you have methods maybe like um, 
Infusion um, or Slick that are operating at kind of maybe lower temperatures. Maybe um, Gibson is slightly higher temperature and then CPEC would be the highest temperature. Depending on the temperature of your assembly, you might be able to um, get rid of some of these secondary structure um, issues. Um, I guess which is what kind of mentioned, um, mentioned right here. Um, I think kind of going forward in, in vivo assembly like yeast tar cloning is going to be really important because generally speaking that's going to enable you to get to um, much larger um, pieces of, of, of DNA um, and potentially more pieces of, of DNA um, because of the specificity and an organism like yeast capacity um, to, to propagate larger pieces of DNA. Um, I think there's a really big philosophical divide um, between kind of standardized design patterns like we talked about um, biobricks. Um, we kind of re reference in passing things like standard linkers for things like Gibson or the Mokla methods for things like um, Golden Gate. Um, and there's some advantages here. It kind of facilitates the design process, pre-validates um, overhangs or overlaps against each other. But then you're kind of stuck um, with all of these scar sequences and you're kind of trapped into a given um, paradigm. So it's kind of flexibility and making exactly what you want um, versus you know, facilitating some of the, some of the design work. Um, all these modern methods, I would say, are fantastic and that they really do enable you um, to scale your automation um, processes so it's easier to um, implement things on laboratory automation or even microfluidic devices, so that's, that's been a really great thing. Um, and algorithmic design optimization can be very beneficial. Um, that can really um, help you, especially if you want to be flexible. Um, that can really take off all of the burden from you from designing um, all of the, um, the, the protocols. Um, it can make sure that you don't have to worry about um, incompatible um, assembly pieces and, and all these types of things. And um, I think coming up right next, we'll be talking about maybe some of the software tools that kind of help you design protocols um, and at the same time allow you to maintain all of that, um, that great flexibility. So in terms of some of the software um, around DNA assembly, um, back in um, 2011, uh, we published um, the, the J5 um, paper. Um, so you can check that out in ACS um, Synthetic Biology. Um, and if you want to kind of um, kind of learn more about that, it's also, um, so there's some documentation at j5.jbay.org. Um, and this is largely kind of an academic um, piece, of, piece of software. Um, but over time, I think as of now, there's over 2,000 people around the world that have registered to use um, J5. Um, but there's also lots of really nice commercial tools um, that are out there. Um, so maybe I'll just touch upon um, two really briefly. Um, so the first set of tools are very specific to particular methods. Um, so this is uh, maybe a primer design tool um, for Takara Clone Tech for their infusion. Um, so they basically would be designing protocols that are very fine-tuned um, for their particular reagents. And it's really nice, I think, for the, um, for the, the users um, to have access to these types of tools because it takes away all of the, um, the effort from designing the protocols. Um, but it also will, will increase um, kind of the, the success rates of the users. So it's great for the users because they they're more successful, and I think it's also great for vendors uh, because their, their users and their customers are, are, are generally happier and it's easier to use their, their reagents. Um, there's also um, some other um, platforms um, which are a little bit more general across different types of approaches. And I'm just going to give you maybe like a couple of minute um, demo um, of the, the Tessalogen platform just to kind of highlight you know, some of these things and maybe how synthetic DNA can basically be incorporated directly um, in these, in these software, software tools. So I'm just going to go ahead and exit um, PowerPoint for a second. And I'm just in, in Chrome here. Um, at the Tesselogen.com website. I'm just going to sign in 
um, to my um, account um, to kind of go into their application. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to open up a design that I already have. And this is a very simple um, kind of combinatorial design. So we might want to be doing here is we have like a vector that we like, but maybe we want to swap out a particular um, antibiotic um, marker for other markers. So for example, um, in the current vector backbone that we have, uh, maybe we have chlorambenicol resistance, but we kind of want to swap that out um, for other types of types of markers. So maybe some of our other plasmas that we have um, have maybe the gentamicin resistance that we want, but maybe it doesn't exactly have the, the backbone that we want. So all we're really kind of doing here in this design, which is very simple, um, is kind of inserting um, these four different markers into this, this vector backbone replacing chlorambenicol. Um, now, one thing I just highlight in particular is that in, in software tools um, like the Celligence platform, um, you can often specify um, the assembly strategy um, for particular components. Um, and in this particular case, maybe for the gentamicin cassette, um, maybe we want it to be synthesized um, by a company like, like GenScript. So we can specify that here. Or maybe for some of the other parts, um, we're not going to really force any assembly strategy and we'll just allow the software um, to kind of um, find out the optimal strategy. So should I do this with um, synthetic DNA because it's going to be most cost effective? Should I do it with PCR? If it's a small part, should I be embedding it in a primer? There's lots of decisions to be made, and, and generally speaking, the software can really help you make those decisions. Um, once you have maybe set which parts you know you want to have synthesized, for example, um, maybe we can just kind of go to the, the DNA assembly um, methods here. Maybe the method that we're going to choose here is a flanking homology method like, like Gibson. Um, and you can kind of use default parameters or maybe just to kind of show you um, a lot of these software tools are fairly configurable, so you could kind of customize it, for example, for infusion or for Gibson or for yeast tar cloning. So maybe, you know, for, for Gibson, we like 26 base pairs of homology, but maybe for infusion, it might be a little bit shorter, or for tar cloning, it might be a bit bigger, or maybe for type 2S uh, methods, we might be choosing different types of um, type 2S um, enzymes and, and, and so on. Um, and if you have a great deal from a vendor like GenScript, maybe you can update the kind of the default um, you know, prices per, per base pair of, of, of DNA and, and, and things like that. Well, maybe let's just go ahead and run this, this protocol. Um, so it's going to take a few seconds to run. But essentially what the software is doing is looking at each one of these different fragments. And I guess the first thing that it's going to be doing is figuring out kind of the, you know, the cost optimal way of putting this thing together. Um, so we already know that we're going to get the, the gentamicin cassette synthesized, but maybe for the other parts, um, is it more cost effective to order oligos? Um, or to, to get um, DNA synthesis. Um, as DNA synthesis prices become increasingly competitive, um, the skew is going to be increasingly towards um, just getting it synthesized rather than doing PCRs yourself. Um, and then after kind of it decides on the general strategy, then it might be designing all of the synthetic fragments for you, the DNA oligos, um, worrying about, you know, are there any compatibilities between pieces and so on. Um, so that's basically what the software is doing. So now that the software is done running, we can kind of go to that um, assembly report. So we have pretty much four constructs um, are getting made, um, the vector backbones and the four different markers. We might just want to preview um, what those things look like. Um, so here we can kind of see a preview of the first construct, which has um, the, um, the gentamicin um, resistant um, marker um, in here. Um, that's basically what we wanted. Um, we kind of scroll down um, through this thing. We can find like the synthetic DNA fragment um, that we wanted to order, and this is for the, the gentamicin cassette. So we kind of know how long it is, and we know what the sequence is. So if you just want to put it into 
a vendor ordering tool like for GenScript, you can just take take the sequence and it's already designed for you with all of the flanking homology sequences already um, included. Um, for any PCR reactions or for reamplifying DNA fragments that have been synthesized, um, the tools will, for example, um, design all the oligos that you're going to need um, to, again, order from, from vendors. The PCR reactions um, that you'd be doing, um, eventually the assembly pieces that you're going to have on hand um, with all of their overlap sequences. And then finally, it'll kind of just give you some guidance as to, you know, to make each one of these constructs, which are the different assembly pieces that you mix and match together. Um, it'll also give you um, any particular warning messages that maybe um, it found when you're trying to do the assembly. So, for example, um, you might be very interested in knowing if there's any repeats um, within um, the, the sequence that you actually are, are, are building, because maybe for in vivo stability issues, those would be very useful things to know about. Um, if there's any uh, primer um, mispriming that you might want to worry about, it, et cetera. So I think these, these tools can be very helpful um, in trying to you know, automate the process for you, still enable all the flexibility, really take advantage of synthetic DNA from vendors, um, and, and so on. So that's just a kind of a quick, um, quick taste of, of, of some representative software tools. Um, so maybe getting back to PowerPoint real quick, um, just kind of in summary, um, you know, just talking about the role of DNA synthesis, and this is going to be playing an increasing role going forward as it becomes very um, cost cost effective, um, and the lengths of the of the synthetic fragments become bigger and bigger. So I think we're really going to see a real conversion um, over, increasingly over to DNA synthesis. Um, there's lots and lots of DNA assembly methods to choose from, and new ones are getting uh, created all the time. There's lots of methods that I didn't get a chance to to talk upon, like the basic method or um, Amaris's um, kind of um, LCA type of, type of an approach. Um, and I also really highlight that um, having software that can help design these protocols for you can be extremely um, beneficial, not only to reduce time and labor, um, but to you know, save money um, and also to avoid any, any mistakes that might you know, cost you months. Um, so just some quick acknowledgments. I'd really like to thank um, kind of Bite Size Bio and Amanda for um, allowing this, this topic um, to be presented. Um, David Lynn and GenScript um, for sponsoring um, this talk. Um, the funding um, for the, J, the J5 development and, and a lot of my support at JBay comes from the Department of Energy and the Office of Science and the BER um, office. Um, and then just some of the software tools um, that I kind of touched upon um, is kind of the primer design tool from Clonetech and Takara and the, the software that I kind of demoed um, was, was to Celogen. Um, so now I think what we're going to do um, is um, switch over um, to, to David um, to say a few words uh, about GenScript. Hi, thanks, Nathan, for that great presentation. I think we all learned a lot about DNA assembly and the variety of methods and softwares we can use to uh, achieve our experimental goals. Uh, I just wanted to give a quick background on GenScript and how we can help in that process. Um, as some of you may know, um, we're a leading biology CRO, as Amanda stated in the beginning of the presentation. Um, and one thing we do like to focus on is our state-of-the-art production facilities and also our highly technically trained staff, um, with over 40% of our um, staff being scientists with PhDs or uh, master's degrees. And so this, what this means for you is that during your um, ordering process and your, the production of your uh, service, we always have a scientist watching over the process itself. And so that way you always get a highly technical evaluation of your order. 
Um, on top of that, um, we've been around since 2002, um, and we've been in over 11,000 peer-reviewed papers that cite both our services and our products. So we've been peer-tested and um, proven. And also, we're a global operation. We not only um, operate in the North America region, we also ship over to Canada, or um, the uh, Asia region, and also um, in Australia and the UK and all over the world, basically. Uh, a quick highlight on um, how we can help with your assembly process. Um, we recently launched a um, new service uh, for gene fragments back in May called GenParts. And what this service is, is pretty much um, it's a precursor to our DNA synthesis, our complete DNA synthesis service, where what we deliver to you is a gene fragment um, in a PCR format. And what this allows for you is um, some flexibility and versatility in how you use those gene fragments. Um, you can either use them independently or um, you can use them as, um, as Nathan stated, in a assembly method um, to create full length genes and pathways. And our fragments, if designed um, based off your standard, um, standard and specifications, can fit any major cloning assembly protocol. Um, they're fast and reliable, um, um, being that when we give you a stated deadline, um, we uh, over 95% of the time do achieve that um, deadline. We have no sequence restrictions when accepting sequences. And we, as stated before, we have outstanding service in our PhD level customer support. Um, so uh, I just want to let everybody know, um, come try our service today. Um, we currently are running a promotion of 30% off all of our gen parts orders. And you can find out more online at our website um, stated below at www.genscript.com uh, backslash genparts-gene-fragments.html. Uh, thanks again to Nathan and Amanda for, um, Amanda for hosting this webinar and Nathan for presenting um, a very informative webinar on DNA assembly. For more information about our products, um, please feel free to shoot me an email at david.lin at genscript.com or visit us online at www.genscript.com. Thanks again, and I'm going to pass this back to Nathan and Amanda for some Q&A. Thanks, Nathan and David, for a great presentation. We have a few questions from the audience, and if anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So right now we have a question from um, George, and he asks, how would you, and this is a question for Nathan, and he asks, how would you recommend purifying PCR products if throughput is essential? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So um, there's a variety of different ways of, of doing that, um, and there's different trade-offs. Uh, so you might be able to do um, kind of very uh, simple old school um, kind of ways just using um, kind of um, salt concentrations and, and, and glycerol or peg and, and centrifugation types of types of ways of just kind of separating away kind of maybe the contaminating oligos from your PCR products. Um, you could just use simple PCR reaction cleanup, um, you know, types of columns. Um, which can be great if you have very pure um, PCR reactions without any contaminating bands. Um, at JBay, we've been um, using um, gel electrophoresis and specifically um, kind of the coastal genomic slash Hamilton um, Nimbus um, system for kind of automating some of the gel purification um, processes. Um, you know, if, if throughput is really essential, again, um, there's different trade-offs with each of these different categories. So maybe the gel electrophoresis is, is slower and more expensive. 
maybe columns, you know, generally are going to work, you know, really great. You can do a multi-wealth plate format. But if you have contaminating bands, that might be problematic. Um, and you might be able to just get, kind of get by with very, you know, old school um, approaches too. But again, there's going to be different types of trade-offs. But generally speaking, for our production processes at JBay, we've been using the, uh, the, the Nimbus um, because we want to kind of have a universal type of a method that works for everything. Um, so we've been generally um, going with that type of an approach. But depending on your needs, you might have different um, slides of trade-offs. Okay. That'll make sense. And then next we have a question from Roman. And so he has a open reading frame with a 20 nucleotide randomized region. Do you know of any way to clone an insert right next to that randomized region? So, so I guess the, 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 the question um, that I guess I would have is if that randomized region is kind of within um, the, the insert. Um, and if it's kind of within the, within the insert, um, I guess the question would be, uh, if you already have, for example, a, a pool of, of fragments that have all of that diversity in it, um, and you could just um, kind of amplify that pool with the, the primers to introduce the flanking um, homology or you know, Golden Gate um, sites and, and things like that. Um, so that would be an approach. Um, if you actually um, have that diversity at the very ends um, of your insert, or I guess you could even split up that insert into multiple fragments so that the the sequence diversity is actually at kind of one of the, the, the junctions of your assembly pieces, then potentially you could encode um, that sequence diversity in the um, oligo itself. Um, so when you're amplifying um, an insert that you, or template that you already have, you could be not only introducing the flanking homology or the Golden Gate you know, type of adapters, mm -hmm. um, but also all the diversity at the same time. So there's a variety of different things um, that you could do there. Um, maybe with companies like, like GenScript, you could actually just order the fragments um, with the flanking homology and all of the sequence diversity in there too. So I think there's a variety of things you could, you could do. Yeah, that sounds like he has a lot of options. And next we have a question from, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, I think it's Chen Fu. And they're asking about the chemical reason for why you need about 15 to 25 nucleotides for homology for Gibson assembly. Yeah, so, so largely it's going to come down to the, the melting temperatures. Um, so okay. if you look at a method like um, Gibson in particular, the operating temperature of that reaction is at 50 degrees. Mm -hmm. So um, in order to have kind of those sticky ends um, kind of be cohesive and stable at 50 degrees, they have to kind of be above a certain um, length. And really it's not about the length, it's more about the melting temperature. So if you have very AT rich regions, you're probably going to okay. need to have slightly longer overlaps. But it's largely about the operating temperature. So maybe for infusion, um, the operating temperature is, is, is lower. So you don't need quite as long um, overlaps. Um, Gibson's a little bit higher at 50. Maybe CPAC is operating more in typical PCR conditions, 60 plus. So you might need even longer um, overlaps for something like um, CPAC. Um, okay. So those would be some of the reasons. It's, it's mostly a thermodynamic melting temperature type of an argument. Okay, that makes sense. And then Isaac has a question about, um, this is just about your general thoughts. So do you have any thoughts about E. coli and vivo assembly? Yeah, so there are methods um, like slice. Um, mm -hmm. And you can, I guess you would almost call that like a um, ex vivo um, type, of, type of an approach where you basically have E. coli that's um, overexpressing um, maybe some like the, the, the lambda red types of mm -hmm. um, recombinases or other types of recombinases. 
Uh, and you can basically just make a lysate and use that as your reagent um, instead of having to buy the reagent from somewhere else. Or you could potentially do the same um, with E. coli just in vivo. Um, if you had basically the same background strain as people use for making um, the slice lysate, um, you could do that. The challenge, I think, with, with E. coli or smaller organisms, bacteria, is they just don't have very much surface area. So it's really challenging to get, like do a transformation and have multiple fragments go into the same cell. Um, whereas with yeast, they're much bigger. So it's much more mm -hmm. likely that you're gonna get multiple fragments to go into the same cell. So that's generally, I think, why methods like slice use lysate as opposed to just trying to transform in the mm -hmm. separate fragments um, separately into E. coli because just the odds of getting two things, two or more things into the same cell at the same time is, is pretty low with something like E. coli. Yeah, it makes sense. It's more of about a size restriction as opposed to whether or not it can actually do it. And then we have um, a final question from Tammy. And so she's asking about the Teslagen app. Yeah, so, so basically um, anybody can um, sign up for um, uh, Teslagen. Um, okay. Generally speaking, it's going to be, um, and you can contact the Teslagen folks. Um, I'm sure Mike Farrow there would be more than happy to talk with anybody. Um, but generally speaking, it's going to be available at, at no cost um, to academics or nonprofits or government. Um, okay. And then for um, companies, um, there's probably several different um, options. You can kind of use their um, their application, like the one that I that I showed, um, or there can be kind of more custom engagement. So some um, companies are very secretive with their data. And as opposed to kind of like a, a cloud-based application, they really kind of um, would prefer more of kind of like a local deployment. Um, so those are all kinds of, of, of possibilities. Um, the Decelligen app right now largely supports um, any of the flanking homology types of methods. Um, it can support things um, like the type 2S methods like um, mm -hmm. Golden Gate, um, combinatorial things, all, all those types of things. There's some really interesting things in the work there. Um, they're increasingly gonna be supporting hierarchical design um, what Decelligen's I mean, no app you know, probably won't do um, for you right now are, are some of the, um, the, the methods like, um, like the user method or, you know, I, I kind of mentioned very quickly in passing, maybe methods like Amaris's LCA method where you use an oligo to kind of bridge um, two different um, kind of blunt inserts. Um, but if, if you're interested in, in those, those methods, you can always contact the Decelligen folks. And, you know, if you're one of their, you know, industrial you know, customers and you're able to you know, support those types of um, developments, I'm sure they'd be interested in that too. Okay, and then she also wanted to know, um, she said like commercial vector backbone sequences presumably can be uploaded into the system. What about if you have plasmids or constructs that you've designed yourself? Could those be yeah, uploaded so, into the, the test legend? Yeah, exactly, so that's well? what I, in, the, in the demo that I showed, I had okay. just uploaded all of, those, all of those plasma templates. So you can upload anything that you have yourself and you might be able to access some really nice commercial, commercially available um, vectors too. That's great. Oh, and we do have one more question. This is from Donatus and they ask about commercial assembly kits. So there's a whole bunch of them out there. Um, like there's Golden Gate and Gibson and all these commercial kits. Um, do you have any thoughts on them or, um, and do you prefer one or the other or anything like that? Yeah, so there's some things to, to, to think about. I think I, for, to a large extent um, here, we've been using um, for the flanking homology style methods in terms of commercial kits, we've been mm -hmm. using um, some of the, the Gibson assembly okay. uh, mixes either from SGI or from NEB. Um, and then um, we've also been using Infusion. Um, 
And I think some of the really nice things that some of the companies are doing now is that they have very high concentration um, formats um, for their reagents. And especially if you're using things like the LabSide Echo, um, so some of these acoustic printers, having really high concentration um, reagent kits is really great because then you can use more of the volume on your DNA assembly pieces as opposed to just the master mix. Um, so that might be a, a, a decision um, for you too. Um, but I think it's just the, the, you know, the right tool for the right job and maybe in your particular workflow or for your types of, of needs, you know, one particular kit is gonna work better, better for you. So I think there's, it's, it's great that we have um, lots of choices. And I do want to add that um, it looks like GenScript is going to be launching such a product at the beginning of the new year. So you might want to check back with them. Or if you're interested in um, the commercial assembly kits, you can shoot David an email. I think I sent, or I did send that out to everybody. So it's david.lin at genscript.com. And so you can shoot him an email. He'd be happy to answer any questions about that particular kit that you might have. Well, that looks like the very last one of our questions. So that brings us to the end of the seminar. And so I wanna thank you again, Nathan, for a fantastic presentation and a really great discussion. And I also wanna thank our sponsor, GenScript. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of this session, please visit the webinars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours or so. While you're there, you can also see the other webinars that we have lined up for you on Bite Size Bio. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at GenScript and Bite Size Bio. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.